is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to episode 13 of Transitional Matters. Today, I'm joined by Nicole Yershen. For those of you who don't know Nicole, well, well, I'm going to get her to introduce herself in a second, but we're going to be talking about disruption. We're going to be talking about this framework that she's created called the Rough Diamonds Framework. We're going to be talking about innovation, change in the world. I don't think there's going to be much we don't cover, actually. But Nicole, thanks for being on the show. And can I get you to introduce yourself and just give a bit of your background, who you are, NY Collective is, some of the stuff you've done in the past? Of course. Firstly, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and it's always humbling to be able to to chat with people like yourself on these kind of podcasts. Who am I, Nicole Yershin? So I'm a grateful human on an incredible journey. I like that. Um, I'm continually thankful for every single experience that I've had. Um, it's been challenging, but I've also been quite fortunate. And my father always was as silly as an incredible inspiration to me. He turned the media industry on its head and that's, um, maybe he can be on another podcast. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's welcome on a podcast. Oh, he's so good. Um, and as a result, I went into the creative advertising industry and learned the hard way about what creativity is and what it isn't. And I learned my trade with the greats like Dave Trott, who I highly recommend people read his books and his blog posts. And later I founded the Ogilvy Innovation Lab and realized that the ad industry is really in the financial services sector. So when they realized how creative I was, they fired me so that I could get back into the creative sector. Amazing. I like that. I like the way you've just put that. They fired you so you could get back into the creative sector. Exactly. What are you up to now? Because there's also the NY Collective. So just what's that about and where's that come from? So it's a culmination of uh, many, many years of collecting a black book. But I, I have lots of words that I um, articulate that can help. So the NY Collective is... Is something that I created to turn everything that I've learned into goodness for the world I bump into or more likely bumps into me. And then you kind of put that together. So I'm a mother, I'm an adventurer, I'm a baby-faced assassin, which is what my partner calls me. <laughs> I'm an author, a rough diamond, speaker, mentor, expert generalist, team builder, solution finder, semester of learning program builder, black book exploiter, maverick, brief taker, bullshit destroyer, plain language speaker, educationalist, researcher, mischief maker, connector, convener, um, maker. I mean, all of these things and, and making the impossible happen. So the minute someone says, I've got a weird idea, I normally think, oh, this is going to be good. Because most times, plenty of people have ideas and they get put into the bottom drawer, mainly because people don't know how to execute on them. I and the collective 
know exactly how to execute on pretty much anything. We've never been given anything where we don't know the right people to go to. So we know enough to be dangerous, but we know who knows way more than us with any idea that anyone can come up with. Before we kind of move into some of the things that you've been involved with and kind of the importance of like innovators and everything else, I just want to come back to that long list of of titles you've just reeled out because I think that's superb. And it touches on something else, which our modern world is very kind of, well, I'm going to use the term hyper-specialist, and we're very defined by a single title. Do you find it hard to navigate through the world? Because if somebody goes, oh, what do you do? I'm guessing like me is kind of like one of the most feared questions because you're like, oh, how on earth do I sum this up in five seconds without giving somebody a, a whole life story? We have been raised in a world where we're a one-word answer, like an accountant or a creative or I work in retail, when when actually we are so much more multidimensional. Plus, I really like the word, and, and I think it's gone a little bit um, weird lately, but Elon Musk uh, termed the word expert generalist. And when I heard that, I thought, yes, that really does sound like me. And then someone else called me an intrapreneur. So an entrepreneur, to get my head around, so this would be an entrepreneurial style within a business. Exactly. Yeah. An entrepreneurial mindset um, or personality working within a very large corporate. Yeah. That's that's superb. And when you kind of look around, I mean, this the, again, this is kind of something which I, I think we'll touch on again in a minute or so, but I think the world's changing so rapidly that you can miss an awful lot if you don't step back. If you're too hyper-focused, too much of a specialist in one area, actually, all of these different trends and mega trends are converging around us. They're all everything's changing, and having that kind of that generalist stance, that entrepreneurial mindset, because really entrepreneurs have to wear hundreds of hats, is so important. This was exactly um, where I was in 2000 when Ogilvy brought me into the agency to bring them into the 21st century to move them from an analog world to a digital world. So proper kind of like business transformation in 2000 where everything was paper and no one wanted change. So I think the interesting thing was that they employed me not in any position. I wasn't employed as a business director or as a creative or any particular department, but I was employed with that huge brief to bring us into the 21st century which meant I could then create something that they'd never had before, which was this person that was needed um, to experience what was going on in the outside world, bring back all of those relationships and new contacts and bring them into a, an organization that had you know, had mainly done TV press and posters and give them a, a way to try a new business model. Well, maybe they could do gaming or mobile or social media or big data or behavior change or whatever the semester of learning I devised for them within the innovation lab. I then, for six months, then had a look at that area of expertise and literally just immersed myself and the whole of Ogilvy into, say, behavior change see 10 to 15 different companies every single week only in that space and then find a client that had a problem where behavior change could fix it and we could come up with some kind of solution. So it was a great way to see what was going on in the outside world and bring it to the masses 
where they were paid to do just a specific job. I think probably one of the big differences, you know, you said you weren't given a title. And I'm guessing that gave you an awful lot of freedom to see things that others couldn't. It did. And I, I luckily had buy-in from leadership because had I not, you know, I was brought in by the chairman and, and by the CEO. Had I not had that level of independence, uh, I guess the, the middle layer, what let's call them the permafrost, would have stopped me at every single avenue that I turned. That's why that, that entrepreneurial mindset meant that you could kind of go over or under or through or round or kind of find a way, make a way to make something happen without someone stopping you and saying no. And there were times where they did say no. When I set up the Rough Diamond program, they said no. And I ignored them for two years, went under the radar and came back up and actually showed them what it was. Because a lot of the time, it's hard to do a PowerPoint presentation on something that's never been done before. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very salient point. So can we just circle back just so that the audience kind of gets an idea? Now, you've written an awesome book called Rough Diamonds. You've just referred to Rough Diamonds. Could you just outline the background to that and what it is? Because you said you received pushback from some people around that. This is a great kind of story of we love the status quo. We don't really like change from a cognitive level. And when you actually introduce something which is slightly radical, you're met with this, I, I'm going to use that term you used, the permafrost. Could you kind of elaborate on what it, what it is, how this came about? So Rough Diamond came about, which I guess nowadays you'd call it a diversity program. 15 years ago, there wasn't such a thing. So all I had was that I was putting in innovation labs and that I was noticing that everyone they employed was white middle-class Oxbridge educated. And they all came up with the same answer to everything. And I wanted someone to think a little bit differently. I wanted, you know, Sir Ken Robinson had just done his TED talk about creativity and education. I just thought, yeah, I want the kids who are about to be expelled or I want the kids who, whose father is absent or the mother's an alcoholic or whatever has happened in their difficult little lives to make them think differently to get through all kinds of situations. So I put it to the CEO at the time and he said, no, I don't want you setting up any kind of program to get different people into the organization. That's not your role within labs. That's HR and, and, and I'll talk to them about that separately. And I just said, you're wrong. How can anyone think differently if they're, if you're hiring all the same? And there's one answer and it's the end of the book because that's what you've been taught. So I ignored him and I set up this program and it was called the Rough Diamond program because it had come about actually as well from the insights of my own son, because he was about to be expelled from school and over and over again. And in the end, I went up to the headmaster and said, you know, what is the problem? And, and when he was speaking, I was thinking, well, that's not really his fault. This is you trying to push him through a sausage factory of education and, and it doesn't suit him. He's much more of a hunter mentality. You know, he's a noise, looks up, looks around rather than that farmer mentality. So I started to really kind of go heavy on the headmaster and send him the Ken Robinson posts and all these different posts. And we found a translator teacher called Mr. Wilson. And Mr. Wilson understood Max and understood the teachers. So Max could take his problem to Mr. Wilson 
that some teacher didn't understand what he was saying and that made him then get irritated. And Mr. Wilson would say, well, what they really meant was this. So it starts to become really apparent that it was a language problem. So once Mr. Wilson was in place and things just went brilliantly for Max, he became deputy head boy and then went to university and got uh, first uh, at Reading and uh, in business and economics. And I, I just thought, what happens to all those kids like Max who do get expelled and they don't have a mother like me uh, to step in? So that's why we called it the Rough Diamond Program. I wanted to set up something where kids from Hackley Tower Hamlets and Greenwich were able to get into the, the, a kind of organization like Ogilvy that wasn't without nepotism uh, or anything else. And they could just get in based on their entrepreneurial behavior and their curiosity and joy of life. And so the program started from kids age 14 to 17. And they would see this organization that they'd never even have access to. And then we gave them hope that maybe they could work there one day. So it's a long-term program. It wasn't going to be done, you know, come in for a week and then buy, have a nice life. It was actually put some effort into these kids. They'd come in as, as youngsters and then we'd keep them on the program. They'd come to us when they'd gone to Ravensbourne or School Communication Arts. And then we would take them when they'd finished their second year, about to start their third year and final year. And we'd take 10 of them in the summer, put them on a kind of um, a program throughout the summer and we'd pay them London living wage. So we didn't discriminate those that couldn't afford to come into town and pay for their lunches. In the September, the deal was they had to teach their teachers when they went back because I was fed up with the teachers saying what industry wanted when they hadn't worked in industry for 30 years. And then they came back to us at Christmas, came back to us at Easter, and then we looked to employ them. We have amazing case studies of, you know, even our first hugely dyslexic original Rough Diamond is now in innovation at Diageo. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Was there a kind of tangible benefits that you could actually point to at the time as well? These people kind of brought, you know, we're talking about a different perspective. Was it something that Ogilvy found, oh, well, actually... This benefited us in this way. It did because they took them on to Hyde. So, and, and also it was almost kind of like how the football clubs are, where they take the youngsters in and train them to, you know, from a very young age. We didn't need search an agency because, and we'd not pay for those fees for, for finding new talent because we had homegrown talent who loved working there and because it was a dream job they didn't even know they wanted because school hadn't even pushed them into those into the creative industries and yeah I mean there's still people that work at Ogilvy um, I mean I've been gone for six years now and there's still people who are our rough diamonds that, that still work there another funny story is one of our rough diamonds was on The Apprentice and um, he then set up his own company and he sent me a note to say what do I think of these guys and it was two ex-Ogilvy people uh, who were looking to pitch to his new company and again, it shows you that did they get involved with the Rough Diamonds? Because if they didn't, then I wasn't going to be too favorable to say, yeah, connect with them. They're good people. If they didn't give any time to mentoring these youngsters coming through and giving back. Can we stick with kind of that innovation topic? Because that's really what we're talking about here, isn't it? In the Rough Diamond framework, you're finding people with a different background, with a different perspective. And I want to talk about why innovation is so important. And I know this is a massively broad topic, but in your book, you mention, I'm going to get this all wrong so you can correct me, but I'm going to take a stab at it. It's something like 
You talk about 1914, you could only buy petrol in chemists. I can't remember actually how that paragraph continues, but you highlight beautifully just how far we've actually come as a human society with innovation right at its core. What are some of the things that throughout your career you've kind of seen as innovations, things which stand out to you? Well, I remember very clearly sending emails around. We had this kind of London lab email group that you had to subscribe to if you wanted to find out anything interesting. Because what was happening was that I was finding everything interesting because I'm so curious. And I was sending notes around to um, everyone saying, you know, there's something called Facebook. You, you guys they really need to pay attention. And someone wrote back to me and said, stop spamming me with all these things. The, the changes that have happened in technology are unbelievable. And for the, for the better and for worse, it's weird because I'm now just doing a semester for myself called Human as Tech. And what is looking back at us as human beings and we're built with the best technology inside of us and how we harness it rather than hold on to technologies that are in our hands. And that doesn't mean that's instead of tech, because I do understand cyborgism and bionic eyes or even pacemakers in the body. And I also understand biohacking and the fact that, you know, you can understand your sleep pattern and feel that you haven't slept well. So in mentally, you feel not ready for the day when actually your watch tells you you've had eight hours and, and all is good. So... I think lots of things are changing, and um, you know, from where we were to even things like uh, chat GP, GPT. But I think the thing that I've always found with with the importance of innovators is that to stop and look back and see how far we've come, um, and it, which is a bit of a paradox. So the core realities for me are understand the history, and then ignore the history, and then make history. <laughs> And I think we have quite a responsibility as innovators. Innovators have to make a business case that radical change isn't radical. So if I go back to my example of Rough Diamond, I could never have done that as a business case. I had to actually go under the radar, roll my sleeves up, do a test and learn. And I think a lot of the time, if you test and learn different things, just so that you can say, I've done it. So this year in my human as tech example, I've looked into crystals, Temescal Lodge, plant-based mushrooms. I've looked into breathing and gold baths and all the things that are way out of my comfort zone. Just so that I understand I've done it, I've tried it. Is it for me? Not necessarily all of it, but at least I can now make an informed decision based on experience. What are some of the things that you've, because you've just listed a whole range of experiences there. What are some of the things that you've found from doing those? What are the lessons you've learned? It's weird because when I went into, I was at one place um, for a week in Ibiza and that was too many things in, in one place. But as I get, if we go back to words again, when I felt I couldn't cope with the meditation, before I did the, the kind of the one hour or 90 minute meditation class where I'm sitting and I'm, I'm thinking, what am I doing here? But I get through it and I get through the end of it. Actually, the meditation was me swimming every morning, seven in the morning before anyone was up and I'm counting my lengths, you know, 50 lengths, one, one. And so that was meditation. 
But we're in this kind of conformist in our head. We think we've got to be sat there in the lotus position for 90 minutes or four hours. And and not move a muscle and, and keep completely still. Absolutely. I, no, I'd completely agree with you. I, I'm lucky enough to live in North Wales and say, so like, from my doorstep, I have this beautiful little walk down through a forest, down to a beach. And that's my morning meditation. I actually walk very slowly, so slowly that the people, if they come along with me, get frustrated. So I tend to go by myself. It's just time, isn't it? It's time alone with your own thoughts. Yes. And so not not running from them. Another good example, when I went to another place um, in the summer, and one of the things we had to do was we were told to get lost in Provence. So it was just vine fields of uh, uh, kind of great life. And they said, you know, you'll be out for about an hour, hour and a half, but we're taking your phones away and just come back before the sun goes completely down, obviously, and just be at one with nature and follow your footsteps and, and follow your paths. And one of the party got lost, 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 as in that the sun had gone down and she just still hadn't turned up. And we were then starting to get worried. And what had happened was she wasn't concentrating on nature. So, the, and the sun was, it was getting darker. So she, in the, in the end, because everything looked the same, she managed to get to somebody's house uh, that she'd found in, in this remote area. And it turned out they were housing a Ukrainian woman with her son. And this woman spoke English and she said, I'm really sorry. I don't know where, I don't know anyone's phone number and I don't have a phone and I don't know the address because we've literally just arrived here, but can you help? And the woman spoke English and she did know people's names on Instagram. So therefore she got this woman to, to reach out to all of us on Instagram. But of course it's a stranger, a Ukrainian name. And I, I'm thinking, and then my daughter phoned me up and said, Mum, Misha is lost. She's just reached out to me on Instagram. This is connect with the person who's just connected with you on Instagram is Misha. And then, you know, it ended really well and she came back into the group. But it was an amazing story of one, not concentrating, because we're, when we're left with our thoughts, they go a little bit haywire. But two, we don't remember anyone's mobile number. Yeah, because we don't need to. That's really interesting. It's, you know, it's... You know, kind of to coming back that idea of your semester of learning. I just want to kind of pass something by you and see see what your take is. If I borrow that term, semester of learning, I've just done one on what I'm going to call the the age of awareness, which is the age I think we're moving into. If we kind of take like a kind of a theme of the era approaching, I think the last 20, 30 years have actually been the age of measurement. That's how I often describe it, in that we've got insanely good, as you mentioned, of like, how long did I sleep for? What was the quality of that sleep? We're now questioning everything like we were talking about with meditation. We're questioning things in in investment world from a morality point of view. In the age of awareness, everything changes dramatically, that the core philosophy of society changes. And I guess that's kind of roughly what you're looking at from a certain angle as well in human as tech is, is that awareness of what are our abilities and how do we harness them? Would that be fair? hundred percent. It came about as well because a lot of the things that I've been looking at, emotional intelligence, testing that I did with my team like years back, what people call soft skills, I actually call core skills, um, things like intuition. Why have we not been paying attention to those feelings of 
this doesn't feel right, or what they just said I don't necessarily agree with, or and not harnessing your power from within to know that those senses are telling you everything, yet you're ignoring them. Because again, if you kind of look at the subconscious speed of processing our brains have, it's infinitely more powerful than our conscious level. But I think where we've kind of got scared is that we've got scared of bias, could find a bias for everything. And a lot of my early work was in bias research. And so, But what you can do is if you actually can systematically go through your biases and go, okay, well, actually, I tend to fall into this one. If you can consciously correct it or bring awareness to it, you can then let your intuition go free. And that's the process that a lot of people don't do. They either think, well, it's either or. I was thinking about that with my team when I specifically went against our HR department when they were doing, you know, your 360 reviews, for instance. And I would always get them to fill out because people would always put me down as, as someone to, uh, to fill in. And it was, I, I could spend a whole job just filling in 2000 people's uh, reviews who put me up. But what it made me look at was it, every time the review was, what are you not so good at? How can we make you better at what you're not so good at? Whereas I then flipped it on its head and I said to one particular guy in HR, I want to do a different kind of testing. I want to do emotional intelligence testing. I want to find out my weaknesses and my strengths and my team's weaknesses and their strengths so that we can work on what we're good at and make us better, not what we're bad at and make us better. So it then turned out that the things that I wasn't good at Someone else in my team was brilliant at and loved it. So it just made for a happier team. And also it made for them understanding themselves that much better. So self-awareness, again, all the things that they call soft skills, they're actually core in leadership. If we move away from leaders being measured on financial gain, how much have you pulled in? And we look at leadership in terms of humility, but with an eye and will. And humility is where you know self and you know you're not perfect. And that leadership role becomes even more important in times of rapid change because it's that guiding light, isn't it, that sets the tone for the rest of the team. And in your space, in the creative space or in kind of in the, in the wider real economy, there are times of, of significant change. Yeah. And I think fear comes into play. You know, I was uh, working with London Business School and needed to do a workshop with a, a session with about 10 different leaders in innovation across a pharmaceutical company. And none of them had met each other. So I said, let's not do it at London Business School in this kind of cold room. Let's go to Soho House and, and have it around the table with some drinks and a relaxed atmosphere. And um, when I started chatting to them, you know, one of the guys said, you know, I don't see the changes you're going to be making for us in three hours. You know, I've tried to affect change in four years and never going to happen. There's always, yeah, but, and we're kind of off we go back again to our day jobs. And I said, well, I can change that for you literally in three hours. Let's, do you all have access to a budget and to a pot of money? And they all said, yes. I said, do you need to get approval on that money or is it yours? They said, it's ours we can do with as we want with our teams. I said, so take a tiny little percentage off of that budget and put it into one pot. So now 10 of you all have access to this one pot that you've created. So you're all in it together. 
Let's break down those silos of countries where you don't know each other. Now you're all in it together with this little innovation part. I said, so now let's work out problems that you've always encountered generically, not just one person. So we worked on maybe the first two, someone else in another country had already solved for, but they didn't know. So they were immediately kind of off the table because they'd already sorted it. So it cost them nothing to, to get a solution. And over the course of an hour and a half, we kind of worked out on six problems and then we worked on six solutions. Really, really easy. And I said, you know, if you need any any help, I've got this huge black book. I can put my hand to anything to change. I said, so so now you're good to go. You know, you've got the pot of money and you've got your problems. You've got your solutions. You don't need to watch the mission. They looked at me with utter fear. As though I handed them the crown jewels, but then with utter fear because... Then I got a barrage of, yeah, but, yeah, but we can't do that. And I said, oh, hold on. I've gone through all of that with you. What I'm holding up now is a mirror to yourselves where you're just too scared to do anything yourself. It's easier to blame your line manager for the last four years. Yeah, absolutely. Now there's responsibility. Word, responsibility. To When you've said you're going to do something, to follow it through because that's the job that you've undertaken. So I want to build on this because in your book as well, you you bring out kind of embracing new and the, the fearless manifesto, which I think you make some absolutely superb points in. Because this is on the same topic, really. Whenever we're faced with something new, there is that initial cognitive gut reaction, however you want to phrase it, of just like, oh, I'm not very comfortable with this. Could you just run through that fearless manifesto and kind of how you came to it and where you've implemented it? Yeah, and, and it's not just work, the fearless manifesto. I mean, I would say me having children was utter fear of, um, and change and didn't know what I was doing. And I remember very clearly saying, you know, hearing my mum and dad speaking away from me after I just had my daughter. And I heard my mum saying to my dad, I'm really worried about Nicole, you know, I, I, would, I think she's got postnatal depression. And I said, mum, I can hear you. I don't have postnatal depression. I just don't like it. Um, I feel like it's Groundhog Day. I'm living the same day over and over again. I'm, I'm going back to work after 12 weeks. She said, you can't do that. What will people say? And I said, I, I don't care. I'm not happy. I know I'm not happy. Now, that level of self-awareness overrides that fear. So I could have given in to that fear, but I knew me and I was happy enough to be very comfortable in sharing being at home with, with my daughter wasn't for me. I'm airing it and I'm sh and, and it's being fearless of consequences to be able to say that kind of thing. So it didn't just come from my experiences with work. It's come from my experiences with life. So I think the first one is of my fearless manifesto is that it's important to ignite the tribe. So, you know, inspire and include and immerse people that you're close to who you know and you can feel are curious and want similar things, want that little bit more and support them and repeat. Then developing nerve, which we kind of touched on, kind of courage, dogged determination with charm. I think that's where why my other half calls me the baby-faced assassin. Because I'll kill with kindness, but we'll get the job done. And that doesn't mean to say that I won't understand somebody else's opinion. I'm, I'm not dogmatic. 
of course, you know, everyone has an opinion and that's the beauty of collaboration because someone might have a better way, um, but it's still not going to stop the, the train from moving. Um, create simplicity. Uh, so, yeah, yeah Dave Trott was, was um, key, I would say, in everything he taught me from my first job and as a mentor and then with his books is that there are some times where academics make it so complicated you don't know what the hell to do. So if you really get it, you know, down to its bare bones basics, then it's easy for you to make something happen from it. And I think people sometimes overcomplicate it because they don't want to do it or it scares them. So if you get it down to kind of simplicity, connect and make mutual value and win and um, create ingenuity wherever you go. So that was, you know, for instance, when they told me that I could do the lab, but there's no funding. So someone like me would say, okay, well, well, great. I'll just find funding elsewhere. And I used to pimp out the vice chairman. I'd say, okay, I, you're really good at speaking and I can be your speaker agent and let me negotiate for you. And his fees came into our R&D pot in the innovation lab. That's what I mean by kind of being creative in dating. And um, the other thing is the connection bit is really hard for a finance director or a money person to appreciate because they're used to seeing um, financial value. They don't appreciate the, the power of connectivity and connections. It could save someone three years of work just by, oh, I know someone, connect immediately with them, with someone else, and the job is done in one day. And yet that's the Picasso story where someone goes into a cafe and Picasso is sitting there and, and she says, oh my God, Picasso, I can't believe it's you. And, and do you think you can just do me a little something? So he draws a little something on the napkin and gives it to her. And she said, I must give you something for that. And he said, that will be $80,000. And she said, well, but that took you two minutes. He said, madam, it's taken me 70 years. So the power of connections. And it's very easy to see why, let's say, a finance director misses that. Because until it's, it's brought about, it's not seen. It's only after the fact you go, well, that saved me <laughs> X number of years. So within the labs, I had six measures of success. I called them my stars. So as long as it showed a little bit of revenue, which was the, the Rory thing, because it was set up for R&D, it wasn't set up to make money. I can't be out there everywhere, every day, trying to connect all these different partnerships and keep a client happy. So it was a different role. Was it kind of they tried to compare apples and oranges? So um, revenue reputation. So everyone uh, knew the power of Ogilvy Labs and how great it made Ogilvy. Also with awards, responsibility, giving back. So we did lots of stuff that was was about that. Relationships. That's the black book recruitment and that was the rough diamond program where we got staff in and and you measured everybody against those or as a team as a team so yeah going back to my fearless manifesto um i think the dawning of an alchemist take a breath so kind of reflect um so as to realize what what has actually happened and then the story as a result of that so that people know you know you can't be mind readers you have to spell it out for them and say, this happened as a direct result of that happening and this happening. 
Uh, so make sure that you are able to eloquently express why that happened. And then a work-life balance. Um, when people talk about that, I, I never found the balance because I kind of just felt it was all life. So wherever I was, whatever I was doing, you know, just being in Paris recently with, with friends, it's not that I'm at work or I'm at play. It just is all life, all experiences, all learning. And I guess that comes back to, though, being kind of curious and observant that every experience is a learning one. I completely get that. Being a noticer is very, very important in and, and not letting the world kind of pass by. But something my daughter did for me, actually, she um, is a holistic trainer and she bought me for Christmas last year a gratitude book. And it has been such a massive change for me to be grateful for the little things and not immediately when the news comes on and you go down this spiral of negativity. It's not that, you know, the world is full of rainbows and unicorns, but it certainly does put a lot of things into perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the issues that we have in our modern society is that the media loves this negative news headline because they know that it draws us in. We're far more likely to click on something which is negative and impactful than something which is marginally positive and benign. And they also tend to get two stories. They tend to get the one story that they're reporting and then they can report the outrage that they've caused. So, you know, it's a, it's unfortunately a bit of a spiral. I actually want to finish our conversation on comfort zone because I think this is kind of a fascinating topic and I picked up on this. I think it was a podcast you did last year and I just picked up in a conversation that you were talking about that you, I, I think you hired a life coach or something like this. I'm going to let you tell your story. <laughs> but I thought it was such a strong point because when the world changes around us, we are all forced to go out of our comfort zone at some point. And depending on how early we do that depends on how we kind of interact with the new change. Yeah. So I had this amazing life coach and this is because I'm curious and I like experimenting and I don't want to live the same day and the same week and the same month and the same year and call it a life. Yeah. So I'm always open to these things. And I remember her saying to me, we really need to get you out of your comfort zone. And I said, what do you mean? I'm always out of my comfort zone. I go to places I know no one, I know nothing, I build connections. She said, yeah, that's your comfort zone. I'm like, oh, okay. And it's a, so I was out of my comfort zone. So she said, we really need to work on your empathy. I've always felt that I was empathetic. I, I was sympathetic, but I hadn't actually experienced what other people had experienced to have that empathy. And she said, if you imagine yourself as a tank because of your get shit done attitude, you start in one place and you get to the other end. And as you're a tank, you're moving forward to the other end. You're going over plants and flowers and all these. Imagine them as people and you're just going over them. You're kind of like, you're, you're in my tank or, uh, and she said, there are other ways in which you can make those people, of course, there's going to be the permafrost, but there are other ways that you can take people who are maybe fearful or you know, just be a bit more empathetic as to who are these people and bring them along for the journey and be patient. And, and she really had me look at myself in a totally different 
way. It was almost kind of like not so perfect after all. And that's again when I did emotional intelligence testing with my team so that we could work on our, what were our natural strengths and, and, and natural weaknesses and how, and that self-awareness, because unless you have that self-awareness, you can't be fearless or have that courage because you're always feeling that there's something missing. But I mean, for me, when you get out of your comfort zone, it, it's like a class A drug. It, for me, it really does get me going and excited and I, I kind of can't keep these things secret I like to share and magic happens when you're out of your serendipity happens working on human as tech as a semester suddenly I'm confronted with all these things that had, would never have come my way I don't want to sound too hippie kind of like I'm manifesting all these things but something happens with the energy when you're out of your comfort zone in spaces you really don't want to be in, something happens with synchronicity or whatever words you want to use that don't make it sound so hippie. But something happens. It's just getting over that fear to embrace it rather than hold it at bay. What I think is really interesting about that is the other point you've identified there is just how different our comfort zones can be. I think that's really interesting because again, you know, we, in many corporate settings anyway, there is often too broad a brush approach, should we say, or a mold. You know, these subtle appreciations make all the difference. I think the other thing that I have learned as well over the years out of my comfort zone, which most people would find very uncomfortable, is how I've learned to seek forgiveness and not ask for permission. Because change can't happen if you're constantly waiting for an approval. Interesting. Yeah. If you're just on the, on the back foot, waiting for somebody else to say yes. So I always kind of went through my corporate life thinking, not actually at my first two jobs. My first two jobs, everyone was like me. So I thought it was normal. When I went to Ogilvy in 2000 and I was there for almost 17 years, I stuck out like a sore thumb. No one was like me. And, and had I not had the other two jobs, I wonder if I would have thought there's something wrong with me. Only because you've got another plane of reference. Yeah. But all the people that were at Ogilvy that were like me, I was their kind of shining, you know, their, their Robin Hood, if you like, of, uh, that I'd pulled together all these nutcases or people who knew that there was something else in them. And I would, get, I would capture them at new joiners meetings. So I insisted to be at a new joiners meeting. And then I could see when I was explaining about labs you know, the ones that were kind of like really excited and, and curious and tell me more, or the ones that were just looking at their phones and bored out of their minds. I didn't want the bored out of their minds ones, so I made a beeline for the ones that were curious. I think that's wonderful. I want to finish just by, can you tell people where to find out more about you? Because you post some fantastic stuff all around. We connected on LinkedIn after kind of reading a lot of stuff and kind of going, there's something similar between our thinking here. But where can people find out more? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find because I have to thank my parents, but and there is only one Nicole Yershon. They gave me a name that, that didn't seem to be anywhere else. So, and I, and I literally just put everything in my name. So Twitter, Mastodon now, you know, I'll experiment with all those kind of new things and LinkedIn, Instagram, and I'm, I'm very happy to share and I'm always happy to 
get in touch with people um, who are interesting and curious and not the kind of, I want something from you. I, uh, you, I really do kind of see through bullshit quite quickly, but the ones that just want to connect in a meaningful human way. And my book, yeah, so my book is called Rough Diamond and it's on Amazon. And um, just type in my name and Rough Diamond and, and it will pop up. So yeah, that'll be, I think that people will find it interesting because it wasn't a book that I wrote physically. I spoke the book. I did it with an app called Day One. So as I spoke, it then typed. And when I did a paragraph, made the changes, did another paragraph. And before I knew it, 15, 16 chapters were done. Amazing. No, I, I think before we hit record on this, I said it was a fantastic book and it was refreshing. And I mean that in the, the nicest way possible, refreshing. I mean, it's you get so many kind of books which are just carbon copies of others and yours isn't. So absolutely. If people haven't read it, they should. That's my view. <laughs> no, thank you so much, Nicole. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.